If you're law enforcement, stop and listen to me right now. If you're a police department that does not have an LPR system, Insight is offering the first 10 agencies, that means one agency apiece, gets one camera for free. You have to tell them that two cops, one donut sent you. You heard me right. If you're a police agency that does not have an LPR system yet, or does have an LPR system, and you're not happy with the product you have, Insight is offering you a free camera, no strings attached, and they will install it. I have 10 to give out. Tell them two cops, one donut sent you, or reach out to me, and I will get you in contact. If you're a business owner or an HOA, please stop and listen to me right now. If you're just listening to the audio, do yourself a favor and watch the YouTube version of this episode to get a visual of what I'm about to tell you. I want to tell you guys about Insight LPR. It's a license plate reader. If your agency, community, or business is looking to invest in LPR to help solve and deter crime or to make your community safer, Insight LPR has my vote of confidence. I've met with their team. They know their LPRs, guys. Uh, They're the real deal. They bring over 75 years of collective experience to building LPR cameras and the software that supports communities across the country. The other thing I really like about this team is how much they listen to law enforcement. They understand the importance of working together with law enforcement and getting their input as they build and innovate products and their service to match the needs of law enforcement. In other words, when I complain or have suggestions to make their damn camera better, they actually do it. The Insight LPR team is extremely passionate and takes pride in their product development, which makes their cameras some of the most durable cameras in the market. For the gear nerds out there with that means is this stuff's made of military grade aluminum and is nitrogen purged, whatever that means. This design makes the cameras rugged and able to withstand harsh weather elements. Here's the big selling point for me. Their nighttime scan accuracy is higher than most of the leading competitors. In my opinion, this is what sets them apart. As we know, the majority of crimes occur at night, so it's critical to have high scan accuracy at night. Insights cameras check the box with the nighttime plate read accuracy greater than 96%. 96% guys, that's pretty freaking high. If your community is looking to invest in LPR technology, reach out to one of their experts today or reach out to me. Tell them two cops, one donut sent you. Coming up next on two cops, one donut. Like that. Oh, shit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So um, the crook had four balloons of heroin in in his rectum, keister stashed, and I missed it by an inch. Um, I hit him just below and it went it went up through his colon, up lower intestine, upper intestine, lodged in his chest. Because like, he was trying to traverse he was going the fence. Over. Yeah. Oh, you hit yeah, a just money really. shot. Dang. <laughs> Permix got there and, and threw the um, trauma suit on him and put all the pressure up. And I don't know if they even use those anymore. I was even, um, and they rushed him to the hospital. <laughs> All right, welcome back to Cops One Donut. I am your host, Eric Levine. Today, I have got a retired LEO, David Putnam. Uh, he's an author, and he is done. He's the jack of all trades when it comes to exciting stuff, uh, from what I'm learning. Uh, how are you doing today, David? All right, thank you for having me. Not a problem, brother. So, okay, if uh, for my viewers uh, wanting to know what this episode is going to be about, um, David's got a lengthy career, obviously. Um, he retired out and uh, doing the author thing and stuff like that. But um, specifically, we're going to talk about his time in handling bank robbery stuff. 
across the across the nation. So um, stay tuned for that part. Um, anybody that's used to the format of my show, we're going to get to know David first, um, figure out why he got into law enforcement and all that. And then we're going to jump into his professional career and all the exciting stuff. Um, I'm actually excited about this part because as a detective, I've never dealt with a, a cross-state um, investigations and chasing bad guys like that. I've touched on it, but never been fully dove into something like that. So should be a good episode. Um, glad you're here, Dave. Uh, before we get going, um, tell people where you're located right now. Cause you look like you're in Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> um, I live in Southern California and uh, Temecula. It's like a wine country. They're trying to make like Napa and it's halfway between San Diego and LA. Okay. All right. I, I I'm not a wine guy. But when I do drink wine, I like Pinot Noir. That's the only one I know I like. I, I, I can't sip it, swirl it, and tell you the notes and all that stuff. I just, if it doesn't make me grimace, then I guess it's a good wine. So it always gives me a headache. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I, I, probably because I'm. They say it's the tannins in the uh, wine that does that. Yeah, it's probably because I'm drinking the cheap stuff too. So maybe if I invest a little bit more into my wine. But. All right, David, you, um, you got into law enforcement. You did the, you, you made it, buddy. Congratulations. You, you survived it. Um, I think you kind of did law enforcement during a, what I call the glory days of law enforcement. Um, but where are you from originally and draw the path that led you to law enforcement for us? Well, you know, my, my, my father was a deputy sheriff for San Bernardino County. And San Bernardino County is the largest county in the contiguous United States. It's 20,000 square miles. Um, and I, it was, that was happening when I was very young. And my, my mom separated from him um, before I even was old enough. But uh, I, I don't know. I was an avid reader all my life. And I, I think I came to law enforcement in, as a sheriff's explorer first. I joined sheriff's explorers. And I did that for about a year. Then I went into um, a cadet. When I was 17, I became a police cadet. I was a police cadet for two years at Ontario. Ontario is a uh, small town in um, Southern California. It's about 90,000 people at the time, 95 to 100,000 people, 100-person department. Um, I did the cadet's job for two years. Basically, it's a gopher around the station, work the front desk. Dive into that a little bit. People, there's got lots of people that want to do the cadet thing or wonder yeah. what it's like to be a cadet. Well, tell them what the real deal is. <laughs> well, it's it's like an intern at any other kind of job, but you're like a gopher. Whatever anybody needs, they call the cadet to do it. But I was also, my one of my main jobs was to um, fingerprint the um, sex offenders, the, the drug addicts, and the teachers, which is kind of a strange juxtaposition, you know, when you got those which one is not like the other kind of thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and I would assist uh, answering phone calls and writing up calls for dispatch uh, when when the, when the call taker was off sick, just doing everything that you could do to learn. I got to see the, you know, the, the backside of law enforcement before I even joined. And then I was allowed to go out on ride-alongs after I finished my eight hours work. So I was so into it um, in those two years that I would do my eight hours and then I would ride on swing shift till about two o'clock in the morning, go home, sleep six hours and come back and do it all over again. And I did that solid for two years. 
Um, the department liked uh, liked what I what I was about, so they hired me early. Instead of 21, they hired me at 20. I went to the police academy. I got out, and I had a, I just loved the job. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I uh, I started chasing violence uh, early on. I, I it started when I went to a robbery of a of a kiosk, uh, a photo a photo mat, which they don't have them anymore because of digital. But there were these little kiosks in, in parking lots, and you'd drive up to the window and you'd give the woman your 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 rolls of film, and she'd give you a receipt, and you'd come back a couple of days and you'd get, pick up your your film. Well, there was a armed robbery of this kiosk. It's one of my first ones that I went to, and um, I saw how just absolutely terrified this woman was, and the the crooks that had did it. Uh, how? What kind of crooks were they? I mean, how, who could do that to somebody, scare the, the, the hell out of them like that? Um, so that particular robbery, um, it was a Hispanic male, and Hispanic female, a certain type of car. And I was always pushing the line on the law. I studied the law very carefully, and I always walked the line on search and seizure. I made case law twice in my career, which I don't know if a lot of people understand that, but it was search and seizure. I pushed search and seizure right to the edge. It went up to the Supreme Court and came back down, and they they uh, uh, made it uh, case law. Sometimes so, case law is a good thing to brag about. Sometimes case law is a bad <laughs> thing to brag about. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, the the one, well, I'm, I'm getting off on two different stories, but on this on this one on this robbery that started me off on my career actually was um, Hispanic male, Hispanic female, handgun, and. I took the report, left, and then a robbery went down in Upland, the adjoining city. Same description. Um, so these these guys were doing like a serial ro- armed robberies, um, and we were we were on one frequency. Upland was on another, and we were we were joined on Montclair. So we we joined, we were dual frequencies. So Montclair pulls the guy over, and they wanted me to pick up my victim to do a drive-by for a field show up. And this is 1980. So I drive over there to pick her up, and she did not want to go. She was just scared out of her mind. I talk her into it. Um, I say, you don't have to get out of the car. You can stay in the car. I put her in the car. I drive over to Montclair, the adjoining city, and they have the crook stopped uh, with the car, and the male and female are sitting on the curb, and the um, the victim peeks up over the edge of the dashboard. She goes, no, I, I don't know if that's them, but she's just afraid to identify them. So I get out, walk up, and uh, Montclair Copper's there, Upland Copper's there, and I said, uh, "So what's going on? Well, we can't identify. We can't identify him. Can your victim identify him?" I said, "No." And they said, um, "You searched the car," and they said, "Yeah, we searched the car, but um, nothing in it, and they can't find the trunk key." So um, I asked Upland Copper. I said, "So you're done with this guy, right?" He says, "Yes." I asked Montclair Copper, "So you're done with the guy, right?" And I'm just turned 21. So um, he said, you're finished with the guy. So I asked the, the crook on, a, on the curb. I said, it's okay to search your car. He says, yes. So I go in his back seat, and it was an old Chevy. I pulled the seat out, and I crawl into the trunk from the back of the from, the, from the, from the front of the car to the back. And I find the gun and the money in the bag. So I come out, and I handcuff the guy. And then Upland says, no, it's my it's my case. And that mock player goes, no, it's my case. No, the hell it's not. <laughs> so I said, well, we're going to call a sergeant because this is my case. And the sergeant comes over and he's being the, the diplomat. 
and he gives them to uh, Montclair, the guy that stopped him, which I can see his point, but it was <laughs> it was my oh. uh, doing that did the case. That's so like, at that well, you point, asked them if they were done. I did, I did, and I knew what I was going to do, and I did, I did, I didn't want a controversy, and it still happened anyway. So, and that I was okay with that. I, I was, I knew I was instrumental in catching the guy. So, at that point, I started um, really going after violence, chasing violence. All I right, wasn't a detective; I was a patrol cop. Let me okay. cut. Let me cut you off real quick, okay? Because there's a good teaching point um, for for people listening. Um, we call them show ups, whatever you want to call them. When we when we bring a victim by uh, potential suspects, um, we don't do that anymore. Really? Yeah. They, like you, um, most of the time it gets kicked out of court because, really? yeah. So that's the difference in law enforcement from that time to now. Now, if you do anything, it's got to be like a six pack where you, we call them six packs. I'm sure you guys call them something similar where yeah, it was six it's pack got, too. yeah. So like now if you're going to do any sort of, uh, things involving suspects, it's got to be through either photograph or, um, you know, separate like watching a video something to that effect but it can't be in person like that anymore yeah i could see that yeah. because it directs your uh, the witnesses or victim's attention to the person because you've got them stopped right yeah. and, and it, it may not be that person but then you'll start getting that bias they're like well if the cop stopped right. him it has to be the guy so i can see that yeah anyway so um so uh, i was a patrol officer and I, I i was really intrigued by this so i started doing my own follow-ups I would be a detective in my patrol car. I, I, I had a pin map and I was pulling the reports from the robberies and I was doing my own detective investigation kind of thing um, without clashing with the robbery detectives. And I, uh, I was on my, well, one of, one, another one was, uh, I was at, at Grove, Fourth and Grove. This is another one that was right next to the other one. And a, a, a silent alarm goes out at the liquor store at Fourth and Grove. I mean, I was right there when it happened. And I drive into the parking lot trying to watch the store, the front door of the liquor store. And I pull up and, and uh, I go, the, the, the clerk comes running out. Did you see him? Did you see him? I said, no, I didn't see anybody. And I was looking too. And he goes, you had to have seen him. So uh, more cops, you know, others back, back me up and we start doing area check. We can't find him. Um, and based, I went back and took the report, but based on what he said, I figured that uh, I missed something. So I went door to door for, I think, three blocks, going from business to business, seeing if um, the crooks had gone in there. And the last one I went into was a Denny's. And I walked into the Denny's, and um, these were two white males wearing, both wearing uh, Levi's and gray long sleeve um, Pendleton shirts. So I asked the uh, uh, waitress, the hostess, he said, do you have anybody in here by that description? And she goes, look in there. And the alcove was filled with construction workers, and they were all wearing Pendleton's. So I said, uh, is anybody acting stupid? Anybody acting funny? She says, well, those two guys over there, um, they just came in and ordered coffee. So I walked over there, my hand on my gun, but I didn't want to pull it. I said, hey, you guys want to talk to you outside? Stand up and keep your hands where I can see them. We're going to walk outside and talk. And so... We go outside. I tell them put their hands on the car because this was back when we still did prop searches, and um, separate them. And I, I, um, I had my gun out. No, I didn't. Have my, I didn't have my gun out. I had my hand, hand on my gun. 
I, I, I searched the first guy and I found the gun in his waistband right off. And so I pushed him over the hood of the car, pulled my gun and um, told him not to move, called for backup. And as I did that, his partner says, I told you that was a dumb idea you know, to go to, go to <laughs> Denny's. So anyway, the, they, I did 12 of some, I did 12 of those. I caught 12 armed robbers on my first- As a patrolman. As a patrolman. My nice. first year, um, and I was really into it. I, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to chase violent criminals. So I was living in a, in a one bedroom apartment. I was making $600 a month, uh, straight time. There was no overtime. It was just straight time overtime. So I had to pay rent. I mean, I was, I was loving life, but I was eating macaroni and cheese and hot dogs uh, for dinner. <laughs> so I come home for dinner one night and there's another story linked to this, but I'm going to go past that one. An officer involved shooting that's linked to this story that I was in. Um, so I, I go to the, I'm having dinner. Dispatch comes on here and says, armed robbery at Market Basket. It's a grocery store that I went to with my mom all my life. It was in my hometown. I knew the area. So I, I tell dispatch I'm cutting, I'm cutting my dinner. I jump in my cop car and I'm rolling up the street. And the, the cop that was assigned to it, um, I knew he wasn't going to get there in a timely manner for what happened with that officer involved shooting. <laughs> kind of sidestep around this. Thing. I got you. Um, so I'm going up, blowing stop signs all whipped as one street. Dispatch comes over the air and says, uh, all units responding. It's two white males wearing Levi jackets armed with handguns and are running um, eastbound from the location. Um, and the box boys are chasing them. So I asked dispatch, I said, the, the, are the box boys armed? And she said, and she, she pauses like she hadn't picked up on it yet. And she says, no, they're not. So I, I decide on, um, Market Basket's on Mountain, and there's probably four or five perpendicular streets to that strip center. I just picked one. I think it was Rosewood. And I drive down the street, and there's a car blocking the street. And there's a guy standing outside the car, and um, he's pointing. He's just pointing to the house. Um, and so I, I get on the radio, and I, I advise dispatch that I'm in foot pursuit of an armed suspect. And I, <clears throat> I hadn't seen him yet, but I knew that's what the guy was pointing for. So what I didn't know was when I keyed the mic, a sergeant who was on scene was setting up a perimeter, and he had stepped on my transmission. So nobody knew where I was. So I run to the front of the house. This old, old guy comes out, probably younger than I am now, but I thought he was very old. And he goes, he's in my backyard. So I, I said, can I come to your house? And he turns real slow. I'm all hyped up. I run to the side of his house. I jump his fence, go into the backyard, and his dog attacks me, his personal pet dog. Um, so I kick him off, and I, I run to the fence, and I can hear the crook yard jumping. He's going thump, thump, going over fences. So I start yard jumping. And now I, can only, I only hear him. I haven't seen him yet. I'm 21 years old. Um, I'm not even a year on the street. Um, I, I come to the fence. I don't hear him anymore. So I do a quick peek, move down, do a quick peek, and I come over into the fence. This is at uh, sunset, low light, um, dusk. And I come in the backyard. I think he's, he's laying there waiting to ambush me. I'm checking all the shrubs and the bushes. And I look up, and he's, he had gone inside the house. This white male with a, with a denim jacket and a chrome handgun. I could see the handgun plane. And he had a five-year-old kid and a headlock around his, and a gun to his head. And he's yelling, quit chasing me, I'm going to kill the kid. So um, I was the number two shot in my academy. I was always a, a, 
a pistol shooter and a rifle shooter. Um, and I was thinking, is that, a, is that the plate glass or is it the safety glass? Safety glass is not going to have the deflection. Um, sheet, cla sheet glass is going to deflect it all over the place. I knew I could hit the guy from where I was. I had the confidence, um, but I didn't know about the I didn't know about the sliding glass. So I yell at him, um, "You shoot the kid, I'm going to kill you." He, I, I line up on him, and he sees that I'm aiming at him. So he pushes the kid down, and he runs through the house to the front door. So I go to the side of the house. I jump the fence. As I as I'm going over the fence, I hear these people yell, "There he is! Get him! Get him!" I come over the fence into the front yard. And off to my right, running down the next street, or um, I don't know what street it was. It was, I think it was one south of Rosewood. Um, these guys are running down the street. They're box boys wearing the, blue, the red smocks. And they're seeing the crook with the gun running across the front yards. So I come out. I'm in wearing a blue uniform. They go, all right, the police, get him, get him. So now I'm running across the front yards chasing this guy. He's got a gun in his hand. And I'm yelling, stop, I'm going to shoot. And he's yelling, you quit chasing me, I'm going to kill you. So I had the, I give a talk about this, the anatomy of violence and what it takes to shoot somebody. It's about an hour talk. And I go into the different um, uh, use of force continuum. And I go through it all the way up to the first officer involved shooting and explain uh, the use of force. So um, what I tell everybody is I had the legal right to shoot him. I had the moral right to shoot him but I didn't have the emotional ability to pull the trigger at that point. So <clears throat> he keeps running. He cuts up between the houses. He's going to go over the fence. Hey folks, Eric Levine from Two Cops, One Donut. Want something better than Ring, Arlo, Ring, or any of the other quick launch home security systems? I've been having trouble with my Ring products. They don't read license plates on moving vehicles. The link doesn't connect fast enough to my phone. And I'm tired of getting notifications only to see like a glimpse of something that set it off. I was reached by a veteran-owned business called Agent Security. The owner, staff, all veterans or former cops, they're kind of like the Chick-fil-A of customer service when it comes to security. They have a system that does everything companies like Ring do and more. They have pivoting cameras that track day or night. They can also read license plates and catch high-definition details that will lead police more effectively to catching the offender. Their mission is providing the best home security systems to their customer. All you have to do is start the conversation to protect our most valuable assets, our families. They listen to your needs and come up with perfect customized security solutions to protect what matters to you most. You can contact them by phone at 713-962-3558 or email info at agentsecurity.com or visit their website, agentsecurity.com. That's A-G-E-I-N-T-S-E-C-U-R-I-T-Y.com. They serve the greater Houston area, North Texas, and more. Be sure to tell them that Eric Levine from Two Cops, One Donut sent you. At that point. So <clears throat> he keeps running. He cuts up between the houses. He's going to go over the fence, and I know he's going to lay in wait for me. Um, and ambush me. So I stop right at the sidewalk and it's low light and it's a technical shot because he's moving. Um, he hits the fence. He's going to go over. I tell him, stop. I'm going to shoot again because I, I still don't have that third component, the emotional ability. I, I know it's a technical shot and I automatically, I don't remember doing it, but I pull the hammer back to single action because I know it's going to be a, a tough one. And um, he gets up. He's about ready to go over and I pull the trigger, just tap it and the gun kicks and he goes up in the air, flips around and lands on his back on the fence. And he's yelling, oh my God, you shot me, you shot me. And I start moving up on him and uh, he's still got the gun in his hand. I can still see the gun in his hand. 
And by this time, the when it, once the, the shot went off, the um, Fox Boys took off running the other direction. Um, so I'm moving up on him about halfway to him, and I stopped because he's still not dropping the gun. I said, "Drop the gun, or I'm going to shoot you." Because I I didn't think I actually I don't think I I I thought I couldn't have hit him because of the distance, the low light, him moving. Um, so uh, he he realizes that, I, that I'm aiming at I'm taking aim at him again, and he looks at the gun like, "Oh, you can see the in his face." He throws the gun down, and the momentum makes him fall on the other side of the fence, on the other side of his gate. So I go up to a quick peek, and he had landed um, flat on his stomach, and the money had been in a bag in his jacket, and it fluffed out all over the sidewalk, and there was this huge puddle of blood growing underneath him. So I get up on the fence, and I can't see his hand. So I said, show me your hands, and he wouldn't show me his hands. So I, I dropped off the fence on a knee drop, and I broke his hip and his uh, leg when I landed on him. Um, I, get him I get him handcuffed, and I get on my radio and call for help, and I don't know where I am, and they ask me where I am. And um, I go to um, the sliding glass window of that house, and there's a woman in her in her um, in a robe. She, I guess she got dressed for bed early. And she runs to her bedroom, closes the door, and she doesn't call the cops. Well, this incident helped me later on when I was in a similar situation, and I had to come into a house. Um, so uh, I, they put a cop on each street. They walked him down, yelling my name, and they and they found me. Uh, the one of my mentors, this guy who was uh, Art Bills, he was six three, uh, two hundred fifty pounds. He was a power lifter and a black belt in karate. Just a just a powerful cop. He comes up. He peeks over the fence. I could see him, and he's so pumped up about me calling for help. He push, pushes the fence down. He breaks the cedar fence and comes 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 waddling in. And I, sh I shouldn't tell this part, but it's a it's it's a part of the old cops mentality. He he, he sees me sitting down on a picnic bench, hyperventilating, uh, with my gun in my hand. And he walks over. He gets down on one knee and he picks the uh, guy's head up by his hair and goes, "Goodbye, asshole," <laughs> like that. Oh shit! <laughs> yeah. yeah. Dang. So um, the crook had four balloons of heroin in, in his rectum, Easter stashed, and I missed it by an inch. Um, I hit him just below, and it went it went up through his colon, up lower intestine, upper intestine, lodged in his chest. Because up. he was trying to traverse he was going the fence. Over. Yeah. Oh, just, you hit yeah, him a money shot. Dang. <laughs> Paramex got there and, and threw the um, trauma suit on him. And put all the pressure up, and I don't know if they even use those anymore. I was even, um, and they rushed him to the hospital. Uh, so there's more to that story, but I, it, it gets a little bit worse. Uh, so that's when I started chasing, uh, started chasing violence. I wanted more excitement. So after four years at, um, well, did that guy wait? We can't, we can't skip past this guy yet. Did that guy live? <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> he had like he was a. He was a serial armed robber, and he had robbed, which I, I didn't know. He'd robbed the pharmacy and the uh, farmer's market. You're going to get me to tell the whole story uh, that day. And when he went into the farmer's mar the uh, pharmacy, um, the, far the pharmacist had been robbed a number of times. He had a pump shotgun under the counter. And when the crooks come in, hold the gun on him, the pharmacy pharmacist gives him what he wants. And then when they're running out, he picks the shotgun up, racks it, 
fires and blows up a display, fires again, blows out his window. The crook turns around, one shot, hits the, hits the pharmacist's right center mass, uh, 10 ring. He's critical oh, no. condition. Yeah. Um, and this is the guy that I'm dealing with. This is the guy that I shot. His name was um, Jerry Harmon. I still remember it because I got a subpoena on him about seven years later. Um, so, uh, <laughs> thank you, Mars. Get me something to drink. So, because he was so critical, he couldn't go to the county hospital. They took him to um, Loma Linda, which is a contract hospital. It's closer. You know, it's actually a better hospital. Um, but as it turns out, the pharmacist's daughter, because it's a small town mentality, was a nurse at that hospital. So oh. he's, he's in critical condition uh, for a long time. And because it's not county hospital and there's no sheriff jail ward, they had to put Ontario coppers on his door until he could be transferred. So they had this sign-up sheet. And, and I'm telling you, I was, I was broke. So I, I signed up for the overtime because it's easy overtime. It's easy money, right? <laughs> The guy that shot him. <laughs> yeah. And my <laughs> lieutenant comes to me and goes, no, there's a little bit of conflict of interest. <laughs> a little conflict of interest there. So um, the, he had a colostomy bag, and they weren't, he wasn't supposed to drink anything. And the, and the coppers knew about the pharmacy, knew the pharmacist, knew the nurse. And so he, they would bring him big gulps and set her on his tray. <laughs> oh, um, shit. It was a 128 grain semi jacket hollow point. So when it went through him, it went through him um, and it blew out his prostate. So, uh, should I tell this part? My wife's waiting. No, I can't tell this part. <laughs> oh, yeah. I told him that. I said that if I, uh, the shot would have been an inch lower, I would have hit the balloons and the guy probably would have overdosed. Yeah. So, um, I, I wanted more action. Uh, so, I, I transferred to LA County Sheriff's Department. And I went to the jail and it's at the time it was three to five years in a jail. I thought I could do that. I'm a street cop. I, I can handle this because I want to go out. I want to work South Central Los Angeles. Um, I get in there and I realize, ooh, this is a bad mistake because <laughs> it's a concrete cave, you know, with nothing but bad guys in there. It's like you're in jail yourself. Yeah. And I, I put it in my books how um, it was one book and then and a band came up and goes, you know, I liked your book, but this is not how it is in jail because their perception was totally different because the crooks, they have all these modules, different um, sections of the jail connected with hallways and all the crooks run loose. I mean, they're in their, they're in their module, but they have like eight different um, uh, passes they can get to run around. So the crooks are constantly moving around through the jail free. They'll go from one module, commit a robbery or a murder and flee to their, back to their module. And there was 20,000 people in custody when I was when I was in that jail, which is the size of a small city. So I put in, as soon as I get there the first night, I put in, I asked I ask around, I go, where's the hottest place in the county? And they said Linwood. And so I put in my transfer for Linwood and a sergeant comes to me and says, um, hey, uh, I know you're new, this is your first day, but you made a big mistake. Uh, you don't want to go to Linwood. And I said, why? He was, was I said, is it the hottest part, hottest place in the county? He said, yeah, but, um, Nobody wants to go there. They're ordering people to go there. I said, well, I'm going, I, I'm, I wanna go. So instead of doing three to five years, I did six months in custody. And then I went out to Linwood. And that was, uh, it was an interesting, I mean, uh, one of the funnest places I ever had to work, ever worked. Um, it was probably seven square miles and we fielded 
two, two, no, three, three two-man county cars and four city cars. And it was cowboys and Indians every night. I think I was, in the time I was there, I was in, I, I, I got to stop and count them, like nine, eight or nine officer-involved shootings. It was just just you? Well, I was with other people, just, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. I was um, like, dang. Uh, some of them were just uh, absolutely, you know, in the books that I write, I put I put all of these in one book or another. All these in, incidents I was involved in, I, I fold them into my fiction, and I write them just the way they actually happen. Um, the book I just finished, um, A Fearsome Moonlight Black, that's that was a memoir I tried to write four different three different times. The fourth time, I put a story arc, a fictional story arc, to make it work. But the first half of that book is just the way my first year of patrol went. So um, I get to L.A. And I'm having a great time. Um, I, went to, I did street narcotics there. Uh, like I said, I was in some really violent confrontations. Uh, I got hurt pretty bad. I dislocated my shoulder. And I, I, I burn out. Uh, basically, in four years, I burn out. So I tried to go to other places. And I realized that uh, once you have the ghetto deputy stigma, they don't want you. I went to yeah. Newport Beach. In, in a suit and tie, and I sat down in their oral interview, and as soon as I sat down, he said, uh, thank you, Mr. Putnam, for coming, but we don't think you can make the transition from ghetto deputy to beach deputy. And that was the end of my oral interview. So um, I'm skipping over a lot of stuff, but then I went to- No, that's uh, okay. I went to, see, I, I applied all around. I got no, no, no's. I finally called San Bernardino County Sheriff's, where I was a sheriff explorer. I knew the area. Um, and he said, hey, uh, can I come to work for you? you got openings? And, and the recruiter says, yeah, we'll take it. And I said, well, look, here, I don't want to waste my time and your time. This is what happened to me in the past. And they said, no, no. Come, you come apply here. We'll hire you. And from the day that I called, two weeks later, I was working for him. That's how bad. I mean, that's, that, that was a nice, it was a great county to work for. So I did, um, I went back to the jail again. And they made me a they made me a weekend duty officer, which means that everybody gets a Caltrans or works on the freeways picking up papers and all that stuff. I was in charge of them because I had the street experience. So every Friday night they would line up, uh, hundreds of them would line up, and we'd have to in, um, register them and bring them into the jail, and they would stay over the weekend uh, before they went out the Caltrans. Once we got them in and got them indoctrinated, of course, then next weekend they could go show up at the freeway. So I started arresting, I'd say, 15 people every Friday night of those people coming in to turn themselves in because I was an expert in narcotics and I was arresting them for under the influence of methamphetamine, heroin, whatever. And I think part of that was part of me getting out in six months there was because the, the captain didn't love didn't want the paperwork that I was creating for him out the front gate <laughs> because it, it ended up, you know, the, it was still at the height of the PCP and you go to arrest somebody on PCP and sometimes they're nice and sometimes they're not. Yeah. Um, they're very sketchy. PCP guys are very sketchy. The worst fight, I was jumped by six guys once. I was jumped by five guys once. The worst fight I was ever in was with one guy on PCP. And that's, that's another, that was back in South Central Los Angeles too. So I go out to the street um, in high desert. I'm working in Victorville Station, and they, um, 
there's 26 people that, that cover like five big areas. Victorville, Hesperia, Apple Valley, Summit Valley. Um, it's just a huge geographic area. And 26 people, the, the deputies were burnt out. So we would get a burglary call Monday. They call on a burglary on a Monday morning, and we wouldn't get there till Friday, Friday night on graveyard. So they're five days behind on their calls, which was making people very angry. You'd show up, and um, they'd yell and scream at you. So the deputies five first, days, five days. Yeah. Shit. I would have forgot why I called you. Right. So <laughs> my, my, my first week I get called, they told us a, a staff meeting and it's up at the upstairs bank um, conference room. And the sheriff is there telling everybody to hold on. Uh, we got help coming. And I asked, I asked somebody to lean over, go, what's going on here? And the guy says, well, half the station's going to see the shrink for stress. And the sheriff's upset about it. I said, stress. This is just paper calls. You guys are just chasing paper. <laughs> Why are you stressing out? So <laughs> I would get, I'd jump in my patrol car at night and there's no proactive, no proactive patrol car going on at all. The crooks are just running. Everywhere I looked, there was a crook. So I would go to a burglary call on the way. I'd make four car stops and arrest four different people for guns, dope, put in my cop car, draw a case number for burglary. And then I, one for gun, one for dope. And then I would run to the jail, book them, drive back out, headed for another burglary, and I'd arrest. I mean, I did that night after night. And I couldn't keep up with my paperwork because I, I was arresting so many people. Um, so I would arrest 15, 18 people a night. So I'd take it home, um, and I would write it on my uh, time off, write the reports on my time off. So they saw something in me and that they liked, so they took me right then after being a year year and a half at San Bernardino and they put me on career criminal division and they said, you go do whatever you want. I mean, just, they gave me total autonomy. So I was writing search warrants and having a good time. And, uh, it, the career criminal was, um, SWAT team too. So right off, uh, I get promoted to corporal. They put me back on the street for a year and they went back on the SWAT team again after that. And then I stayed there for nine years. Um, and, um, so when I was on a violent crimes team, uh, it was a collateral duty. So I, my, my main function was, uh, SWAT, but my secondary collateral duty was violent crimes. Uh, I was chosen to be on this team was cross the warrants of us marshal. And at the time there was, um, 2,400 bank robberies a year happening in Southern California. It was just a, a plague and the FBI couldn't handle it. So they were, it was the. 93 or 94, the fall of the, 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 the Berlin Wall, which kind of, it's kind of funny how it impacted, you know, us in San Bernardino, but um, their, their counterintelligence of the FBI had a bunch of spots open and they didn't want to lose them. This is what, this is what the FBI explained to me once I got there. So they started these violent crime teams. Well, they assigned a, a FBI agent with four locals and they would chase bank robbers. So, um, there was four of us. We got cross sworn as U.S. Marshal. Went to uh, a rural office. They called it a rural FBI office, but they had it was in this six-story building, all glass in downtown Riverside. We walked in the first day. Um, you know, we had to walk through two different security checkpoints in the FBI office. And we come in this big bullpen, and it's a huge bullpen. There must have been 
10, well, there's probably 15 desks of, of FBI agents who handled nothing but bank robbery, um, which I thought was odd that everybody was sitting at their desks. <laughs> no, when, when, how are you gonna chase bank robbers if, if you're sitting at your desk? So um, they take us over the front to the liaison's officer's desk and they give us money you know, for whatever we need. Uh, and with the sheriff's department, we had to sell our soul to get 20 bucks to buy dope, right? The FBI goes, they have this 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 uh, gray box open. They said, how much you want? And I'm just thinking, well, I'll take $300. Give me $300, right? Right. So they give me $300 and they, they um, have this stack of, I'm, I'm telling you, it's probably a, a 18 inch stack of reports that they were assigning to us. They want us to chase, investigate these bank robberies. So, um, take this guy, I open this one report looking at it, and this guy's called the um, Handsome Bandit. I think it was called the Handsome Bandit. They well, that's name a good nickname to have. Yeah, they name all their bandits. I thought it was kind of, a, it's another odd thing about it. So, um, the FBI agent takes me to the window and goes, look down there. See that, see that credit union across the street? This guy robbed that bank. And I look at the guy and I said, you know, <laughs> if, if I was an FBI agent and they robbed a bank right across the street from my office, I wouldn't be telling people about it. You know? Yeah. So um, I would talk to some more and the, the clerk comes in and she says, hey, the handsome bandit just hit at such and such bank in Riverside. And I guess this, there's, a, there's a squad that um, is assigned that's up. They start grabbing their war bags and going for the door and they stop and they go, aren't you going? Yes. Aren't you going to the bank robbery? I said, well, he's not going to be at the bank. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and they, yeah. They give me the eye, like, what are you talking? What's the matter with you? I was, I was a little bit arrogant. So I said, you know, I'll go to lunch and I'll catch him after lunch. <laughs> so, so we go to lunch and um, I'm reading the report and I can see the, they, they, they know the guy. He's the name suspect. He's couch surfing. They think going from go, hype, uh, uh, dope house to dope house, sleeping on the couch. So uh, I look at the booking photos and I could see the guy. It's a heroin hype. So I go to the phone, I call Riverside. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Impact Tactical. Impact is a tactical outfitter for the men and women of our military, police, fire departments, and other public safety around the country. Impact's core beliefs is that fearless men and women protect our freedom and safety, should have access to the best tactical performance apparel, equipment, and tools on the market. And they shouldn't have to go broke to get it. I've used Impact for about 11 years, and I can attest that they do live up to their core values. So you get a personal recommendation from me. You can find them at impacttactical.com. That's M-P-A-K tactical.com. And be sure to tell them that two cops, one donut sent you. Department. And I said, if I'm a, I identify myself, I'm a doper. I don't want to buy heroin. And I'm in this, like I give them a, an area where the banks were. Um, where would I go buy? What's the closest place I could buy dope? And he gave me three locations. These are dope streets and there's dope heroin all sold all over the street. So... We had a picture of the guy on a wanted poster, but they couldn't catch this guy. I don't know. And uh, this is right after lunch. So we sent two cars to this other location, and me and my partner are in our car. We picked this one street, and we're driving down the street real slow. And um, I just fanned the $300. I fanned it out, and I hold it out the window <laughs> like, like I'm trolling. <laughs> and these heroin hypes, you know, it's like the Night of the Living Dead, you know, when you go to a hair heroin street they come running they come running up the car and i pull the money back and uh, i said i'm looking for this guy i show him the, the, the picture 
and they, and they said, they go, no, you're a, you're, you're a, you're a cop, you're a pig. Um, I'm not a rat. And they run off. The third person that, that did that, he goes, oh, I just saw that guy. I just saw him. So I get out, I pat him down for weapons, put him in the car, and I drive him to the location uh, that he, point, he points out. He goes, he's in that house right there. I just saw him in there. So now I'm wearing, I was wore, uh, I had, I had eight shirts. My wife disputes this. I don't know it was, she thinks it's six. I think it's eight. Uh, khaki, look, khaki colored shirt that says Grace Trucking on it, Carl. And I had, I went to a uniform shop and these were left there by a truck driver. So I, I, I bought them from this uniform. This your, uniform your shop. mic's, your mic's getting muffled all of a sudden. Oh, okay. Not sure what's going on. Okay. Well, there you go. That better? Yep. So, um, uh, I, I wore these these uh, truck driver shirts, and, a, and a, I wore them for so many years that my captain just started calling me Carl, and then everybody started calling me Carl. So um, I I don't want to go after this guy in plain clothes because if we got to shoot him, you're going to say that his, his defense is going to well you know that that he didn't know we were cops. So we flag down a patrol car, um, uh, and tell him uh, the location. And to follow us, and I told him one guy take the back, one guy go with us, and we hit this house real hard. Um, and we found a guy in the back room. He st- he sits up off of a off of a mattress. We knock him down, and he's got the bank money in his front pockets. So oh. yeah, that makes, yeah, makes and pretty the, fucking easy. <laughs> it was die pack money too. The die pack had gone off. So <laughs> so he's just sitting there inked up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we, we pick him out. And handcuff him and set him on the curb, and uh, we we had dispatch call the FBI, and they, they three cars come zooming up the street, and our liaison officer, liaison FBI agent comes running up, goes, "What did you do? What what did you do?" We told him, told him the story, right? And he looks at me, and says, "You can't you can't go in that house after him. You need a third party search warrant. You need to search for the body, right?" Well, it has nothing to do with the criminal. It's, that's a civil remedy. So um, I said, I said, okay, we'll just let him go and we'll catch him again <laughs> to, to the FBI agent. Yeah. Which didn't endear me to the FBI agent. And we ended up getting in a later on a big pissing contest. And um, yeah, the story gets better anyway. Um, yeah. I've, I've had my fair share of FBI. Yeah. <laughs> They, so, they, they, they like to piggyback their success off all the work of the cops. <laughs> yeah. And that's what they were doing in the bullpen. They were taking the local cops uh, robbery report, stapling their transmission, the FBI uh, transmission report to it and waiting for it for us to clear it. And that's why they had 2,400 of them, you know, every year because they weren't taking, putting anybody in jail. Yeah. So the next one they gave me was uh, uh, the one uh, they, they picked one out that wasn't an original pile. And it, because they were just trying, they were upset what happened. And they said, catch this guy. And this guy had done 86 bank robberies from San Francisco to um, San Diego. And um, <laughs> it's going to be a little bit more hard, difficult to catch. Uh, so I read, 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 read the whole investigation. They did a pretty good investigation. He was, he's a named suspect, another named suspect. They couldn't catch him. Um, and they had covered their bases because this guy was making a monkeys out of the FBI. So uh, I decided to go back to basics and retrace his steps where he lived 
uh, in LA, South Central Los Angeles, because I used to work there. So I know the area. Uh, so I go back and we're doing door knocks in the neighborhood where he lived. Uh, I almost got carjacked twice uh, when I was doing in this investigation. I was nice. sitting in the car talking on the cell phone and this crook from the projects comes walking up on me um, and I don't have time for him. So I just put my gun up and set it on the, on the sill of the, of the, of the, of the car, of the car window. Yeah. Oh, I'm talking to the phone. The guy goes, Oh, okay. Okay. And I'm like, he just walked away. You can see the body language, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so it took two weeks to find somebody and it was a nice uh, woman who was a nurse uh, and she says, oh, I know, I know him. And I said, well, I'm not looking for him. I'm looking for his girlfriends. You know, his girlfriends, because that's the only way that the only lead that the uh, FBI didn't take. I was going to go um, backdoor uh, this investigation by chasing somebody else, a collateral. In, in the... And so she gave me, I think, two names, but she gave me one name that was solid, more solid than the other. And so I called L.A. Welfare, got a negative called uh, San Bernardino Welfare on a fluke. I think I didn't call Riverside County. And um, I got a hit in San Bernardino County where this girlfriend lives. So we left LA, drove back to San Bernardino County where we started. And it was about five miles from the sheriff's headquarters. And uh, I had uh, two, three, three new guys with me. Yeah, th no, no, two new guys with me. Green, green detectives. And so I, I, uh, I knew that the number of the apartment was a 200 series. So I told the one detective to stand right here, watch those windows. And if anybody comes out, you holler for me and you stop them. So we go into this as a quad area and as a, uh, a defunct pool with a chain link fence around it and dirt. And they're sandblasting the inside of this quad area. And so there's big, huge billows of sand and smoke, uh, uh, dust. And nobody's out, you don't see anybody. I look up on a cantilever on the second floor and there's one crook standing outside his uh, his apartment, and he's shaving his head with a with a, with a shaver, and the cord's going into the window. So uh, me and this new guy, they walk, we walk up the stairs, and when I get close to him, as I'm walking close to him, I can see that he's got the gold tooth right up front. So I know that this is our crook, this is our guy. But now, if I get in a fight with him on a cantilever, uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go over the side and get hurt. If anybody's gonna go over the side, he is. And my boss isn't gonna like it, right? So I wanna yeah. contain him. So I said, I, I take my flat badge out because I look like a truck driver. And I said, uh, Department of Social Services, I flashed the badge and I said, I need to count how many people are living in this apartment because I wanted him inside where I could put the, the, the grab on him. So we go inside and there's, uh, I think there was five other, there was a total of six, five other gang members. So I made a, I made a bad call on that one. And my partner, I couldn't say this is the guy because we're too close. He didn't. He still didn't know what was going on. We get inside, six gang members. Um, I look at him, try to give him, you know, the, you know the the okie doke with the eyes, and this is it. And he doesn't get it. So I, I carried two guns. I pulled both guns and started jumping up and down and acting crazy. Tell him I'm gonna kill everybody. Get them all down on the ground and and uh, handcuffed. But we only have. I had two sets of handcuffs and he had one set. So we call down for the other guy, he comes up. Anyway, we get him grappled up and uh, we call the FBI from that apartment complex. <laughs> and um, the FBI agent, the liaison, liaisons, he was uh, really a nice guy. He actually was uh, a long distance runner for the Olympics. He was, he was, in the, uh, he was an Olympic uh, contender. 
uh, really uh, straight-laced is what I'm trying to look for, a stuff shirt. And so when I called him on the phone and said, hey, we got Barnett, he, he says, fuck you. <laughs> he goes, you do not. Because this was the one that was supposed to be, you're not going to catch this guy. Right. It took, us, it took us two weeks. So he says, if you got him, if you really got him, um, bring him to such and such location. I want to see him. I said, all right. So we put him in the car. And I'm driving. I forgot where I was driving. But we put him in between us in the front seat. And we're driving to um, to where we're going to meet the, meet the FBI agent. And the crook says, hey, I'm hungry. So um, I said, yeah, you're going to go away for a long time while these bank robberies. I go, what do you want to eat? And he says, I want a cheeseburger chocolate malt. So I drove through, got him a cheeseburger. You know, he's being cool. I'm cool. I'm, I'm always, yeah. you're, you're nice to me. I'm nice to you. So um, we, we pull up and uh, the FBI agent, um, I get out of the car. He looks at me and goes, how'd you, what'd you do? What, how'd you get him? I tell him the whole story I just told you, but when I get to the part about not having enough handcuffs, he stops me in my story, which you don't want to do. He stops me and goes, well, you don't have handcuffs, what'd you do? So I said, I'll look at him. I said, I took out my buck knife, and I went to the curtains, I started cutting down the, the cords, and I started tying them all together. <laughs> and he says, no, no, don't tell me that. I don't want to, I don't want to hear that. Right. So the next one they gave us was, uh, uh, oh yeah. So, so, so the the um the crook, the crook is eating a hamburger and drinking a malt while we're going to see the FBI agent, and um, he says, "Who are you guys again?" And I said, um, "U.S. Marshals," and he goes, "Oh, that's why you guys are U.S. Marshals because them them deputies are assholes. They never do this." <laughs> Anyway, he had no idea. He had no idea. He had no idea. So, so with this, you're, are you still a part of the violent crime initiative thing? Is that what was yeah. going on? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And this is the this is how you were chasing deployed, right? Okay. So then we okay, started cause... chasing murder suspects too. Well, okay. Bank robberies. This is the bank robbery stint. So okay. they, give, they give us another there's one. No, there's no training. No. You just because yeah, of your reputation, it. you just. Yeah. That's all they it. did was deputize us. <laughs> oh, I you know what they did? They sent us to Quantico for a week of, of yeah, classroom, and they have a really nice Hogan's Alley. I don't know if you've ever been to Quantico. No, never been. It's federal money, and they have this Hogan's Alley that is looks just like uh, a street in the USA. It's got a full-blown bank. It's got a you know, grocery store, all, everything. It looks like a regular street. So they could practice um, their their, uh, their bank robberies and that kind of thing. And, okay. Uh, we got we, we got in a little trouble there too because we were using those uh, those soap bullets or those simunitions. Simunitions. Oh yeah. 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 And we shot an FBI agent who was playing a crook too many times, and they got they got mad. Um, <laughs> hey, your <laughs> mic. I don't know what keeps happening. It's like it it gets covered, uncovered. Oh, okay. I don't okay, know I'll, what I'll, it's. I'll just, I'll just hold on to it. Okay. I'll just hold on to it. Here we go. My, yeah, you don't wife's... even have to keep that one side in your ear. It'd make it easier for you. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, is that better? You hear me? Yeah, because it because anytime it rubs on your face, it just oh I yeah oh, I can sorry. hear okay. it. No, you're okay. fine. I just wanted because right. earlier it never did it, and then all of a sudden it just all started right. popping okay. up, and I was like, well, 
So, so then they gave us, um, Oh, that's perfect. Some intelligence. And it was, uh, uh came from Las Vegas and these, uh, this gang of, uh, uh, black gang members, I think they were rolling sixties, uh, were, were spending die pack money at, at, in the, in the casinos, which is a clue, you know, that's a pretty good clue. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, and they were taking it. But, yeah. Well, I don't know, uh, you know, how bad the die pack money was. Maybe it was traces. I don't know. They just said they just gave us a file and said these are the guys that are spending buy, buy pack money. So we set up on them and we did uh, 20 hour surveillances on them, which was foolish. We should have stayed up on them 24, um, but we just didn't have the manpower. FBI was picking up our cars and over time, um, you know, and all, all kinds of they had all kinds of resources that we didn't have. So we have, we we followed them around for two weeks, watched them case I think three banks. And then at the, the Friday of the second week, we um, watched him go in the bank and oh, rob it and then come out. How fucking pumped were you on that? Oh, man. You know, I have never been higher in my life. Yeah. Um, they, they come out running, you know, with, with guns in their hands and a bag of money in their hands. It was really something. I, that's what I do currently is I work for a property crimes team. And so oh. that's what a lot of times that's what we're doing is we're following burglars and thieves. Um, right. Obviously not as high profile. It's not bank robbery stuff, but um, yeah, you, you catch them cutting a catalytic converter off or, you know, <laughs> yeah. come running out of a store with a bunch of stuff, you know, they, they just stole, you know, and you could tell, and like, now you're right. Like that's the most jacked I've ever been. It was oh, like, geez. you're actually seeing the crime occur. It was a kick in the ass. Yeah. So um, we had another caper where, cause we were SWAT trained. And I had extensive experience in SWAT. We did, uh, I even went in on some hostage rescues. I, I forgot how many now. Not not very many, but because a lot of SWAT teams are mostly barricaded and they don't do the hostage rescues. Uh, anyway, uh, we got sideways with the FBI because uh, they had their idea. We knew where a bank was going to get robbed and um, they wanted me to stand inside the door uh, in a suit and tie. And when the bank robbers pulled up in their stolen car, right in front of the bank. And as they're running up to the door, they wanted me to lock the door to keep them out of the bank. And then in front of a glass front door. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I'm not the most tactical sound person, but that sounds like a bad call. (laughs) So anyway, uh, we got sideways with them. Um, uh, uh, I forgot what, what, what precipitated it, but we separated from the FBI um, because my captain got mad at him because of what they were accusing us of doing. Um, I can't remember what it was now, something insignificant. Uh, so I went to my boss and I said, I want to embarrass the FBI. <laughs> and he was mad. So he says, okay, um, try not to make it, you know, try not to cause too much trouble. Right. Kill so, him with uh, kindness and success. I, yeah. <laughs> so I, I called uh, my buddy who was still working in LA County, he's working a uh, spy which was the prison gang uh, intelligence unit. And I said, give me the FBI's top 10 most wanted out of LA. L- LA FBI office top 10. And he sent me the list. And so I went after him. I took my team. We went after these guys. <laughs> and you didn't share any of the intel. <laughs> no, we kept catching them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, one guy, FBI was chasing for two years. And we, it took, it took me a week to catch that guy. But, um, after the third one, the captain said, "That's enough because you guys got to come back to our county and work in our work in our county." Um, and then um, 
I met my wife and I wanted to power down a little bit. So, uh, well, I, I chased murder suspects for a while too. And in, in the movies and in, in books, they say, they show the homicide guy getting the investigation and chasing the bad guy, but that's not the way it works in Southern California that I've seen experience anyway. Our FBI, our, our homicide guys are, are highly trained and they're, they're trained in interviews and forensics and all, all that stuff. It's very technical. Um, so they do the case. Um, and if they don't catch the guy in a smoking gun, they get the warrant and they hand it off to a dog team. And I was on that dog team. We would chase the crooks. So I, I would chase murder suspects and we'd get behind them and, you know, we'd knock on the door. He was here 30, 30 hours ago, you know, day before yesterday. He was here 20 hours ago. And you can't come off him because if you go home and sleep, then you, um, you might drop back two days behind him again. So right. I chased the guy, I think, 42 hours straight one time. And I would keep um, Red Man. I didn't chew tobacco. I didn't use any kind of nicotine. But it's a very powerful drug when you're not, when your body's not used to it. So I kept one pouch in my door. And as I start to nod off, I would pull this Red Man chewing tobacco out and put it in my mouth. And it would just wire me like nobody's business. Yeah. And I had the same pouch for probably five years. I had the same pouch. It would start dry out. I take a wedge of uh, apple and put it in the in the pouch. <laughs> that works. Oh yeah, it, it draws oh. the, the tobacco. It instantly drives draws the moisture out of the apple and goes right back to the to, to the uh, tobacco. Oh, yeah. I've never known that. I, I, I'm the same way. I don't use any nicotine or any of that stuff. So well, keep some red man with you if you got it. Yeah. If you start dozing off. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, and I had some great SWAT callouts. You know, the the twenty thousand square miles. They um, we get paged out to a location sometimes, but sometimes it was so far away, they page us out the airport and they put us on a sheriff's helicopter and fly us to the location. Uh, so anyway, uh, we chase murder suspects. I chase them to Vegas, Arizona, that kind of thing. Mostly back to LA, um, catch them in LA. Uh, and I you got no training on this back well, then? Like, what, other what, than, no. like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just crazy to me because i know how things operate today like you have to have all these certificates and all this stuff and i'm just the old school policing method was like hey you're good at catching these types of guys go get them (laughs) that's what it was (laughs) (laughs) you got a knack for bank robbers let's keep it going right um so so then i i left um violent crimes and I, I equated that to chasing hunting grizzly bears because my next assignment was working at Ontario International Airport, uh, nar- uh, narcotic interdiction. So I went from grizzly to salmon because you had to go through magnetometers to uh, catch the crooks in Ontario Airport. And right. it was, I, I was still Carl with Grace Trucking, with denim, Levi Pants, um, John Deere uh, truck driver hat. I'd sit in the airport doing a crossword, and they gave me a card. And this card said um, it had 10 points. And this is not uh, racial profiling. This is criminal profiling. So it, was, it would be like um, one, number one would be uh, cash, one-way ticket. Number two would be a new hard side uh, suitcase, you know, that kind of thing, all the way down to number 10. Yeah. So there was, this was Ontario had sold the airport. Uh, LA, LA, yeah, Ontario sold the airport to LA. And it was LA's airport in Ontario City. Uh, which was kind of an interesting thing because um, uh, L.A. ran the airport. So LAPD had six officers there 
and they were fun to work with, LAPD guys. And then there was two DE agents, no, three DE agents, and there was four deputies, um, and we had these these radios. But the LAPD guys were old. This was a retirement place. They didn't want to work. So I would go out in the terminal and sit there and do my crossword, and I would see a, I'd see a five walk by. And I'd say, hey, I got a five on the radio. And they say, they'd come on. We're not coming out for a five. <laughs> you gotta have a you gotta have a nine or a ten, or we're not coming out of yeah. their office, right? So I would I would do cold contacts, and I was carrying I, I was easily carrying 70 percent of the cases, but only because I was the one not only one fishing. Um, and then uh, I was really liking that job. But then uh, six six murder suspects in our jail. San Diego County Sheriff's Jail. The um, it was the old, the central jail was the old one. Had been there for a long time, and these women, girlfriends of one suspect, uh, another girlfriend, went into the visiting area. One distracted the uh, deputy, and the other used a Black and Decker cordless drill and drilled out the bolts on the window. And six murder suspects got out the window, and it oh, was shit. a major, major black eye. Um, so. Uh, I was their major, their main fugitive hunter because I was I was successful at it. So the captain calls me, you know, the guy used to call me Carl. And he said, Carl, I need you to hunt these guys. And I said, no, I don't do that anymore. I'm working here. He goes, okay, okay. <laughs> so so um, uh, they're not catching them. They're not catching them. This one guy, this one, this one crook had cut this woman's head off in front of a five-year-old daughter. And it was just a huge problem. Um, so captain calls me again anyway the third time he calls me he says look out the window i look out the window and he's sitting at the curb in his car so i went out and talked to him and he he didn't order me but he kind of made it you know you know what i'm talking about how yeah. i need you to do this for me so yeah. he gave me three green guys again brand new green guys detectives and um i started hunting these murder suspects <laughs> and and the first I got the first case, uh, the file, and I looked in it and uh, started backtracking it. And this crook had a car that he had put in for um, some kind of work. I can't remember. Putting in a, a new stereo system with the big speakers or hydraulics or something. And he, because he was in jail, he couldn't make the bill, so it was being sold at lien sale. So I wanted to search that car to see if there was any link to any locations that he might be hiding, right? Yeah. So I go there with uh with these with these guys these deputies and i'm wearing my carl shirt and i walk up and it's a, it's a it's a wrecking yard in compton it's a really bad area big huge african-american guy eating a sandwich I comes walking out and um he sucks his teeth right off because he knows i'm a cop which is a very just respect he does it on purpose to try to you know to get me to go so i'm smiling because i want something from him and i said um see that car over there I, I, I show him one of the cops. He said, go over there. I want to search that car. And he sucks his teeth again. He goes, you got a search warrant? And I said, you going to make me do that? You going to make me go get a search warrant? He goes, yeah, you need to get a search warrant. I said, all right. So I reach in my pocket and I take out a business card and I, I write, okay to search. And I sign it. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I give him the business card and he looks at it kind of funny. And the other guys look at me and their, their mouths are dropping open. And they said, I said, go search the car. Go search the car. So they go search the car because it's not a, it's not, I don't need any evidence for the crime. The crime's already been committed. I'm just right. manhunting, right? Yeah. Um, so 
uh, we, we searched the car. Then the next day, before we leave to go to LA again, um, the captain's doing the briefing, the briefing, not debriefing, debriefing, uh, the daily briefing. And at the end of it, he reaches in his pocket and he says, and make sure everybody has a full pocket of search warrants because <laughs> the story had gone around already. Yeah. <laughs> Putnam, did you guys hear about what he did? That asshole. <laughs> I could just picture what they're talking about. Maybe uh, that's why some case law was made, bud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's why I was sued 13 times. Jeez. Well, hey, back in the day. Yeah. There weren't, so, wasn't any precedent sent yet. So Right, right. Um so I would drive back and forth to LA man hunting these guys. And I would stop and get a beer, a fifth of beer for the drive home. Uh, usually Miller High Life. Uh, I probably shouldn't be saying that, but it was a long drive. <laughs> the uh, champagne of beer. Yeah, champagne of bottled beer. Yeah. So I stopped at this liquor store, and I didn't realize I was in I was in the bad bad part of L.A. I mean, it was. I'm sure you had the same area kind of areas, but the, remember the um, the Rodney King uh, riots where yeah. Reginald Danny was pulled from his truck and they hit him with yeah. a brick. Right. Yeah. Well, that was that was that liquor store. I didn't realize. Oh. So weren't there like people on the rooftops, like trying to protect their store later on? From oh, the that, riots? Was a, that was in Koreatown, I think. Oh, OK. Was the Koreans. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this was afterward. I met on this guy. I go in the store. I'm wearing my Carl shirt. I'm a white truck driver yeah. you know, with a with a truck driving shirt. I go get my fifth of beer out. And there's a whole long line of crooks um, waiting for the counter. And I walk by the um, security guard, <laughs> and the security guard shakes his head. And he goes, Mm-mm, "Just when you think you've seen everything." <laughs> you know, a truck driver standing in line with a fifth of beer. So yeah. I get up to the counter, and the clerk goes, "No, man, just take it and get out." <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah, he didn't want he didn't want you the store getting all tore up. Yeah. So uh, I go walking out, and I get flagged down by these these two guys in a Firebird. I go walking over. And I go, what? And he goes, you're a bounty hunter, aren't you? And I look around and go, how'd you know? He goes, because only a crazy motherfucking bounty hunter would go in that liquor store. <laughs> so um, we caught that guy. <laughs> we caught that guy, uh, the guy that cut that woman's head off, and uh, that kind of took the pressure off. Yeah, I would I would think so. That's kind of a high-profile case in itself. Yeah. and it's the, um, It's funny you mentioned the, the store. Because it reminded me, I got to the bad side of town one year. Um, I I didn't know the area, but my my buddy, who's we're riding around two man, I'm like, man, I gotta go to the bathroom, and he's like, oh, I know a police friendly store, I'll take you there. So I was like, all right, cool. <laughs> so we get there and we get the front of the store. I'm like, you sure, man? Because we're in a, we're in a UC, we're not in a regular car, you know. Yeah. And I definitely still look like a cop, but right. I was dressed down. And so I'm looking around. I'm like, are you sure, man? He goes, oh, yeah, I go in here all the time. Just tell him Dowdy sent you. I was like, all right, cool. So I go inside. I'm like, hey, man, what's up? I was like, Dowdy said it's cool if I use the bathroom. He's like, he's like, I just get this puzzled look, like, back that way. And I'm like, all right, cool. Go in there. Go to the bathroom. Come back out. And he's out there just dying laughing. He's like, uh, did you get any weird looks in there? I was like, what the fuck, dude? There's like game rooms and like there's like illegal gambling machines in there. There's all this like signs that this is not a cool place. We just happened to get lucky and hit it when there was nobody really there. Yeah. But 
yeah, my buddy sent me in, you know, <laughs> <laughs> sent me into the wolves and, uh, yeah. Uh, such an asshole, but yeah, same type of thing. Cracked me up afterwards. We laughed about it, but during the time I was like, God, I'm glad I didn't get shanked or anything in there, dude. <laughs> Cops. Yeah. The, um, the case law, one of them I remember was, um, I was watching this, I was working patrol in uniform. I was watching this dope house. I take people off, coming away from it. And I, um, I wanted the possession for possession cases. <clears throat> and I caught this guy and, um, driving away. There was four people in the car and his little girl was probably six or seven years old. And I pulled her aside after I pat everybody down. And I said, who's got the dope? And she goes, she points, she tells me the guy, he's got it in his mouth. So I try to get to him before he swallows, but he swallows the heroin. And I, I don't know how many balloons at the time. So he's on the influence of heroin. So I take him to the emergency room for a pre-booking book him the pre-book him and i tell the nurse i want to i want his pump and stomach stomach pump to um get the heroin she goes you know we can't do that we can't do that that's you know shocks the public conscience and all that crap so um i said all right i want to see the doctor and the doctor comes over and i said i want you to take note and i want you to sign my pre-booking form that you're releasing him to, to book a jail for an influence of heroin and I look at these objective symptoms and I point out the objective symptoms of heroin. And I said, I'm telling you that from, uh, I, I witnessed him swallow some balloons. And if I take him to jail, he, those balloons could rupture and he could overdose and die. And I want you to sign this release. <laughs> he cusses me out, <laughs> orders, of course. The to, orders the nurse to bump his stomach. So <laughs> I recover that balloons are heroin. And of course the defense attorney says that was unlawful search and seizure. And that one went all the way up the line um, and came back down. I got a nice letter from the state saying, thank you for helping us. Um, what would it, the verb, I used to remember the word. Oh, define, no, clarify this, uh, this uh, unclear law or something like that. That's, another one was another heroin house. And um, it was a woman. I knew she had bought some heroin. And um, I couldn't search her. Not, not willing to find the heroin. So I searched, it was dark, really dark. I looked with my flashlight on this parkway, grass parkway, and I told her to stand right in one place. And I went and searched the car, but keeping an eye on her all the time, one eye on her. And I went back underneath her, under where she was standing, there was heroin, balloons of heroin, all where she was standing. So um, I, I took that one too. I wrote it just like that. And it went up, uh, up the line for the, for the search. And that one was held too. Huh. I mean, a pre-search, like a pre-search. Yeah. yeah. Your camera kind of angled up. All I see is your oh. nose. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's, it's interesting. What is the process like when you are the subject of case law? Like, what is that process like as the cop? Because I'm sure there's going to be a lot of cops listening to this and, probably kind of wonder that themselves. Like, are you at court for all of this or? No, nothing. All... I never, I didn't know anything was happening with it until I got the letter in the mail from, from the department of justice. So really? I never, never, I never testified one day in court. They just, I guess it went to a motion and, and they denied, you know, for motion to suppress and it went from there. Wow. I would yeah. think for sure you would be involved somewhere in that line. You'd think that I would have been in front in front of the Supreme Court testifying, yeah. but no, 
Never happened. Wow. Another that... one was a another one was a parole search, but I can't remember what it what it what it was. I don't remember the particulars of that one. Huh. Yeah, I would have thought for sure. I, I see that's why I like doing this stuff, man. You know, you learn so much new crap as you go. Cause the last thing I want to be is a part of setting any case law, but <laughs> it, it, sometimes shit just happens. Yeah. It sounds like some of yours was a little more, um, it, your creativeness is it, it paved the way for where policing oh. is today. Oh yeah. You know, when I was, when I, when I hit LA County sheriffs, um, and it, in the Linwood station, I got up, they made me go through training all over again, even though I had four years on the street, LA wanted me to have six months with an FTO. And this FTO was just a total asshole. In fact, he sat me one night in that car. He took a sap out and sat me in the chest with his, with his 415 Gonzalez. So I took my sap out and I sapped him. And he was shocked because trainees aren't supposed to do that. They're supposed to be subservient. <laughs> so um, as soon as I, 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 was in, I was in one shooting with that guy and another one with another. I, I think it was in three shootings in the first six months. Um, like I, I, because I had training as a traffic officer in uh, Ontario, they put me in a traffic car in Linwood, and that is not what I wanted to do. So, mm. so um, I, I thought if I do a good job, they'll let me out. So they give me a two-man crime car, which is what I want. I want to work a two-man crime car in South Central. So, um, I start writing twenty-five tickets a day. Each shift, I write twenty-five tickets. A book. <laughs> a yeah. Book. A whole book, right? Yeah. And in briefing, I would sit there while the, t- while the sergeant is talking and I'm filling out my tickets. I'm filling out the code <laughs> section, you know, the court dates. I'm filling out everything I can on a ticket. And the sergeant goes, What are you doing? You know, you haven't pulled the guy over yet. I said, Well, I know the intersections I'm working. I know we're going to run the stop signs. <laughs> so, I mean, you ain't wrong. Right. Right. <laughs> right. So, just saving time. My traffic sergeant just loved me because I was just killing it. But I got bored to death about it. And um, back back then in L.A., it was against the code, against the machismo, the arrogance of the deputy to take a warrant arrest. And I'll I'll take anytime I can feed my handcuffs, I'm happy. Warrant, no matter no matter what it is, right? So yeah. I, I'm in this. I'm doing this traffic car, and um, the I I get bored and I go to the two detective sergeants. One's uh, crimes against persons, one's crimes against property. And I said, you guys got any warrants you want served? And they look at me like I got two heads because no one serves, you know, no one goes out and arrests, use arrest warrants. They say that if you get an on, on-site uh, PC arrest and you take them to jail, that's when you discover the warrants that they have. But you don't go looking for them. I said, I don't care. I'll, I'm bored. I'll look for them. So they give me $50,000. It's a big warrant back then on down. And, um, I started going in between tickets. Once I get my book tickets done, I'd, I'd go knock on doors. And um, I was still pretty naive. This is, I was probably my fourth or fifth year in law enforcement. And um, the first time I knocked on the door, I said, is so-and-so here? No, no, he's not here. And I, I figured, oh, oh they're, they're lying to me. So <laughs> this is what you're talking about, uh, the creativity that I used to get myself caught up in. Um, <laughs> I went and had some business cards printed up. <laughs> And in, in a in a black in a mark black and white in a uniform, I go knock on the door. Is so and so here? No, no, he's not here. And I said, Oh, that's too bad. Well, why is that too bad? I, I would hand him the business card, and it said, 
a deputy Putnam special assignment with the county assessor's office. <laughs> it was you know, total bullshit. And, yeah, and I yeah. said, last time so-and-so was arrested, a small percentage of his bail wasn't refunded to him. If he doesn't uh, uh, pick it up within uh, 15, now 10, 15 days, it reverts back to the county general fund. And so <laughs> I started salt. Where's my I money? Write, <laughs> I write on the back of the card, um, 1029 Frank, which means he's a felony, and 1015, which means arrest him. Right. <laughs> You're right. And so I, when they hand it to <laughs> and I hand it to the crook. <laughs> so about the third about the third time I knock on the door, fourth time, I don't remember what it was. Because I don't know if this is gonna work or not. Um yeah. the guy says, Oh, uh, that's me. Uh, it, I was lying to you because I thought you were here to arrest me. And I said, Well, give me some ID, because now I think that he just wants my money, right? Right. Show me some ID. And he goes, no, I don't have any ID. And I said, well, get your ID, come down. Here's a card, come down to the station, and I'll give you your money. Slow so play, goes, I like it. He goes, wait, mama, mama, come here, mama, tell him, tell him what this is. So she says, yeah, this is so-and-so. I said, all right, come out to the cop car. I got the money in your cop car. I take him out the cop car, arrest him, right? And I take him into the station. And back then, you had to run your arrest by the, the watch sergeant. And if it was a felony, you had to go by the watch sergeant and then by the, get it approved by the lieutenant. So I go into the okay. watch sergeant and I show him the, the, and I tell him the story and he starts laughing his ass off and he calls another sergeant in and they're oh, laughing. I would too. Yeah. And, and so, it's brilliant. No, no, it gets bad. So this one turned bad on me too. So it was like a, it was like a sitcom timing because I said, well, you, you think this is funny? I, they're they're going to start turning themselves in. And they said, well, these crooks are stupid, but they're not that stupid. And it was like perfect timing. The, the, the watch deputy sticks his head in the door and goes, hey, Dave, there's some guy at the front desk says you owe him some money. So <laughs> I go, I call it, and I arrest him. And um, pretty soon, uh, I'm arresting more people than all the other patrol deputies. You know, yeah, I bet. Shift, right? Because it's going to catch on pretty soon. You know, the word's going to go out, but it, right. it's going to flash. I know it is. But the detective sergeants are coming to me. They're saying, get this guy, get this guy, because I'm clearing all their cases. I'm making yeah. them look good, too. So um, my tickets go down to zero. I can't even write one ticket. Um, <laughs> so, so the detective sergeant comes to me. He goes, you, you make one more arrest. That's not in the vehicle code. And you will be in a, a traffic car the rest of your career. Because he knew oh, what shit. I was. So yeah. the detective sergeant comes to me. Hey, get this guy, get this guy. He said, oh, I can't do that anymore. And I played it up because I was I was just grumbled over the whole thing, and um, he he storms off and I, he goes to the traffic sergeant's office. I hear yelling, and the door slams, and I figure, oh, I'll be in a, I'll be in a crime car tomorrow. Right. So I go home. I come in the next day, and I get called in, and they put me on the desk. It caused so much shit that they 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 took me off the street and they put me working the front desk, right? And I was pissed now. You know, I got I've got five years on the street and they put me on the front desk. So I think I've fumed for a couple of days and I thought I'm not going to let this get me down. So part of my job was to take in the reports that the deputies turn in and check them off of the case. You know, the, the case number is turned in kind of thing. And so I would read the report. And so I started calling the crooks on, you know, name suspects on the report. Reports and call them up and tell them, "Hey, you got some money that I owe you. Come on in." <laughs> <laughs> so, so the um, the uh, the desk, the uh, watch commander calls me in and goes, "Close the door." And I sit down and, and the sergeant says, 
you know, my desk personnel can't arrest more people than my field personnel. It's not right. So he says, quit, knock that shit off. And after you do your penance, we'll, uh, I'll, I'll take care of you. So I, I, don't, I don't know. It was a short penance because they saw something in me that, and so they, they pulled me off patrol and they said, you can go do whatever you want. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was a detective. And so I went out and I got in a lot of trouble then. Oh man, I bet that's funny. You know, and I, I remember during the weed and seed era uh, in our area that they they did the um, you want a TV? Come on down and pick it up. Right. That warrant roundup thing. I remember them doing that, and they just walking in all happy, like, "Where's my TV?" And I was like, I, my heart actually kind of hurt for them. I'm like, ah, oh, you know, you you just went out and you thought you want a TV, and now you didn't win a TV, and you're going away in cuffs. Like it's got <laughs> fucked up. Some of them would even ask because they're getting put in cuffs. Well, do I still get a TV? <laughs> like, no, dummy. <laughs> just got you. Just got bamboozled. Yeah, we would. We we did a couple of times where we would uh, take dope, take cocaine out of, out of the um, evidence that was adjudicated. We had a court order for it, and we'd have this, the crime lab make rock cocaine out of it, and we'd cut it up. We'd do. We'd still. We'd serve a search warrant on a rock house because we couldn't. We couldn't sell the rock that we seize. We had to sell our own rock. So. <laughs> We just took over the rock house. <laughs> I don't think they do that anymore. <laughs> you don't? I don't think they do that. <laughs> we also, I'm cool with that. Yeah, we make it in-house. It's, it's our own recipe. <laughs> well, they come here to want to buy the Coke. We, we, we have the Coke on, in little baggies on the table. They get, to, they get to pick their own rock. And like you said, one guy, um, he picked the rock out. And I say, okay, you're under arrest. He goes, no, no, this one's too small. I want that one. Even though I said, you know, be on the cuffs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Had- <laughs> I had some kids one night. They, they picked up a so – they were in the wrong neighborhood. They stood out like a sore thumb, and um, they bought some pretty high-quality weed because I could smell it from my car. Like, so yeah. pull them over, and I do the, you know, hey, man, you – where's it at? Don't play games with me. You don't belong over here. Like you guys are idiots. Like you're going to get rolled on. Like, don't come over here buying stuff. And as, so I get the weed from them. Like, all right. And they're like, uh, he goes, do it. Can I keep the weed? He goes, no. He's like, you want to go to jail? He goes, if I go to jail, can I keep the weed? I'm like, get the hell out of here. You idiot. Oh my God. That was a good story. Well, when I was working narcotics, we would also, because we had two um, freeway corridors that were narcotic highways. And we had this, um, the, the Caltrans people make up a sign for us, a big blue sign that was with reflector tape. And it says narcotic checkpoint ahead. And it was four feet by eight feet. And we'd set it up on the side of the freeway. Yeah. Watch them throw their shit out. <laughs> and then they would get off the freeway and throw yeah. their stuff off at the, at the off ramp. Or just or turn around. Yeah. They would get out, go over. And that's the ones we wanted. So we were set up on the other side and we would chase the guys that got off and kept going. <clears throat> and back when, when weed was still a felony, I got, I think it was 200 pounds of, of bud out of the trunk of this car from some people from Oklahoma, Oklahoma plates. <clears throat> and I called, I called the, um, I called uh, the department, ju- no, uh, who did I call? DEA. No, it was the, um, I called uh, USA, the USA, US attorney and asked him, 
you want to adopt this case for, for a federal transportation case because of, of the circumstances. And they said, hold on a minute. They looked and they said, they said 200 pounds. I said, yeah. He said, no, our threshold is, a, is one ton today. <laughs> because they would, rate, they would rate how their caseload was within the court system and they would base it on <laughs> on the, uh, the, the poundage. The threshold was a ton. <laughs> 200 pounds? No, no, no. Jeez. I missed out one night. Um, I pulled over uh, two uh, Aryan guys um, in a truck. They, I could tell, like, all the signs and symptoms, they, they were sketched out about everything. And so I was like, well, maybe there's something fun here. Pull them over. And uh, one guy throws up. He's so nervous, he throws up. I'm like, something's in sign. this truck. What the hell's in here? So I searched the truck. Um, they both had warrants, like bullshit warrants, nothing big. Um, and uh, they had this five-gallon bucket, like two of them, in the back filled with oil. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? So I see a stir stick in the back, and I'm trying to make sure there's no bricks or anything hiding down in there, right? Exactly. So I search it, and when I pulled the, the, the stick out, I was like, it was like this reddish thing. So I get nothing but, like, a, a joint. And I'm like, I, I'm like, you guys lucky night i don't know what you're into i know you're into something i was like but i'm gonna let you go because i got nothing else you know so i let him go and i do this real detailed report and i tag narcotics and gang and both like i let both units know like this is what i found well less than 24 hours they go find these guys the narcotics crew the the oil i just i even described the oil i probably sh i wouldn't i don't know why i put the color but i was like it was like some red liquid it was meth oil right like that for those that don't know the way that weed or drugs work in general is by the weight and liquid weighs a lot more than anything else. Bust. So that, that was, was a huge bust, bust and I yeah. missed it. <laughs> Lesson learned. I was like that to this day would have been the biggest dope bust I would have ever had not being a dope officer, but yeah, totally missed it. And then the narc guys, they were cool about it. They were like, yeah, like when, like you did a great report so well that we knew exactly what it was. Um, so we went out to see if we could still get it before they transported it wherever they were trying to go. And uh, I was like, man, I was like, I could have used a class on this, bro. I was like, I never heard of meth oil. I was like, all I know is like what I find in the bags, you know, ice or whatever. Never heard of that stuff. So I, I don't know if they still make it that way, but um, I ain't been in the streets for uh, as a patrolman in a while. Right. Yeah. So you do this, um, and I, I don't know if I clarified, you didn't, what, you didn't have any law enforcement in the family? Like My what? father was a deputy sheriff for a short time. Okay. Wasn't that, is that why? No, I don't Just, think so. I don't think no? so. I think it was, I think it was Adam 12 and reading Joseph Wambaugh books because I was an avid reader when I was young and I was reading books way above what I should have been reading. That explains younger. why you like to be, that's why you're an author. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm the complete opposite. If it ain't on an audio, I don't, I don't read it. Well, my books are all on audio. You can pick them up on audio. <laughs> oh, I will listen for sure. <laughs> I had another author on here. Um, uh, Pete Thrawn, Thrawn, something like that. Um, I'd have to look up his name again for certain, but a uh, former NYPD cop um, who did two years in jail. Like he got oh. uh, in trouble um, on duty, but he writes about all that stuff. Um, so I had him on and he's, he's like, man, have you had a chance to read any of my books? And he goes, uh, 
I looked for it on audio, couldn't find it. And he goes, I don't have audio. And I was like, I probably won't read it then. He's like, you're you're really honest. I appreciate that. I "I just hate reading. I don't have time. It takes too Mm -hmm. long. That's why I like podcasts. I can listen and and go do my things. And I'm a busy man. (laughs) So, um, but yeah. Okay. So you, so your dad was in law enforcement, but that wasn't necessarily the influence. The right. Because he he got out of it before I was old enough to even realize. Okay. Now with your arresting, I want, because this is, there's a huge difference in making an arrest today versus making an arrest back then. How long did the arrest process, like once he's in, he's, he's booked the booking part. We all know that like, that's the quick part for us. But after that, what was the work like involved for you back then? Was there a lot? Was that it? Just wash your hands. um, As a detective, there's a little bit more to do. If you start the arrest yourself and walk it through because there's the filing part of it. Um, But as a patrol officer, you would just, book the guy and sometimes there's seven, eight different report forms you got to fill out. Um, okay. That's on, depending on what you're arresting him for. Which you is, know, were you doing it by hand? Were you guys, well, computers I, typing I, it out? I dictated when I was at Ontario and in LA, they didn't have any dictation. So I had to go back. I had to learn all over again. I had to write reports by hand. So, so for those wondering what dictation is, is like, we basically tell the story to somebody that could type. And then right. they would type out the report for us. And I wish to God recorder. they still had that. That'd be great. Oh, you don't do that now? No. You gotta, no. Shit. Shit. You got to type. Like, you do the oh. report. Like, you oh, gotta, that's really? what I'm saying. It's changed. Like, oh. my dad was, he did law enforcement 30 years. So I, I know all the old stuff. And uh, right. I, I hear your stories. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, man, if he knew all the shit he'd have to do today, I don't think he'd be making that many arrests. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, those those arrests that I was making on the car stops, that was probably a three-page report handwritten. That yeah. Was it. Yeah. Yeah. I'd handwrite them. And, you know, once you, once I did so many of them, they got they were simple to just keep doing. Right. And, yeah, uh, yeah, for some sure. Some of the technical ones, um, when I was working patrol, I was supposed to be a training officer training somebody, but I, I was just like throwing people in jail. So I developed some informants, and I had – a three-prong search warrant on multiple locations, one affidavit, one, <clears throat> yeah, one affidavit for, I think, five locations. <clears throat> and um, uh, I, so I get the search warrants, and, and my boss was, was, a, was a really nice, negotiable kind of guy because he knew what kind of cop I was. <clears throat> and so I, I set up a, an operation, and we hit all these houses at once. And this one deputy calls me over, who's running this other house. And he says, this guy here, um, he says he doesn't want to go to jail. He's a real estate broker and he, it'll ruin his reputation. So I said, okay, I'll talk to him. So I put him in a car and I, and he says, I know where, I know where three pounds of meth are. And he's got a bunch of guns and cars. And I said, okay. And I drive him by the location. He points out the house. There's eight cars in the driveway. I grab a couple of plates. I take him back to the station and I say, um, give me your name. Uh, and I'll, I'll I'll check you out, and if I get anything off this, I'll uh, I'll let you go because I just had him for um, under the influence and being at a place, being at a narcotics location. So I <clears throat> he won't he won't give me a name that I can uh, verify, and it comes out later that he had an NCIC warrant for attempted murder or something. Um, I find out later, but I run the plate, and the plate comes back to Bill Smith, 
one of the plates come back to Bill Smith. So I want to get into that house to see if the guy was telling the truth. So uh, I run I run a Bill Smith in the, the computer and I get, you know, like, I forgot how many, 25,000 returns. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I pick the likeliest one, I tear it off and I go to this deputy and I say, hey, I want to go search this. I want to go arrest this guy. You want to go with me? And he asked me what, because they, they started asking me what I was doing. They, they asked more details. So yeah. I, said, I yeah. show them the warrant. And they go, oh, no. I'm, nope. <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> so um, I finally asked the sergeant. The sergeant I tell the sergeant, he laughs. He goes, yeah, I'll go with you. Because <clears throat> I'm low profile until you don't, you're not low profile anymore. So I go to this house, the big, huge house in Apple Valley in the Knolls, um, real expensive house. I knock on the door. And the guy answers the door and everything inside the house, I can see everything is brand new. And um, I said, hey, I got this warrant for Bill Smith. He goes, Bill Smith doesn't live here. And I said, all right, um, whose car is that? And he goes, Bill's. I go, Bill who? Bill Smith. And he goes, oh, man. He goes, oh, man. <laughs> I, go, I, go, I just want to come in and look to see if Bill's here. That's all I want. He's not yeah. here. I'm out of here. So I go in and um, uh, he shows me around the house. It's all really lavish, expensive stuff. And as soon as I get to the threshold of the master bedroom, I smell meth. Um, it was the, uh, there's two kinds. There's the, uh, the dirty socks meth and the apple blossoms meth. And this was the apple blossoms meth. So I turn around, I said, thank you very much. I go back to the station and I call a young call judge who I knew because I did a lot of search ones with him. And I said, hey, would you give me a search warrant based on my smell, based on an order? He goes, yeah, yeah, I'll give you a search warrant for that. Yeah, training and experience. It's like yeah. smelling the odor of marijuana. Yeah. So I'm okay with that. You go back, and I got the ram. I got two guys deploying in the back. Now they go with me because I got a legitimate search warrant. And um, the guy sees me coming up the door. It's a big double door. And uh, he slams the door, and I throw the ram right at it, knocks the door open. I chase the guy in the master bedroom and tackle him. And uh, he had, he had uh, four or five pounds of meth and guns. And so, um, oh, I forgot part of the story. Um, I called, I called narcotics first and said, Hey, uh, you want this, want this warrant? And they go on a smell. No, we don't want that warrant. So um, then I, when I got in there and got all the dope, I had to have narcotics come out to do the seizure because we're going to seize all the cars. We're going to seize everything in the house. And, oh, I um, bet they were pissed. They were pissed. I bet they were. <laughs> and, then, and then I found I found um, um, two storage sheds out of city in another county, and so I did addendums real quick. And we wouldn't hit those things. We seized we, we seized a funny car, you know, just all kinds of crap off of a smell search warrant. That is, oh man, I, I've done that one. I've done the, you get, you go in and you know, another, you get the, the narcotics unit or whatever, just like motherfuckers, like <laughs> they should have, they know they're not yeah. mad at you necessarily they're mad at their own self because they didn't, they, they didn't uh, trust your instinct on it. And you yeah. end up, you end up scoring five pounds of meth that, that should have been going under their unit. That's huge. <laughs> Love it. All right, sir. So let's transition. All right. You've got this fucking badass career. I mean, you're, they need to make some movies after some of this stuff. Like this is true crime stuff that you don't, 
you don't get to hear and and because of the time frame bank robberies were a lot more prevalent back then right you know right. cameras were terrible or you know internet wasn't really a thing yet um not the way we use it today nobody had cell phones with cameras especially right you know yeah, late yeah. 80s early 90s even late 90s um that stuff was terrible so uh getting away with it was feasible today it, i mean it, it happens you can get away with it but not for long and we, we you get found um huh. it's just too many cameras and technology out there now right. so they they, they got to figure out a new way to do it and then we got to you know, you know, it's the old police game. You know, they they figure out a new way to break old crimes, and then we got to figure out a way to catch them again. But um, you you turn your career into writing, right? Right. What happened with that was um, I was an avid reader, like I said, and uh, we would go out on surveillances, and uh, you know, it's a lot like in the movies. I'm sure you understand where you put one guy on the eye, and four guys, four of the cars would lay off someplace back of his grocery store, you know, in a, yeah. in a parking lot someplace. So it's a good perimeter, but out of sight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would read my book while I'm waiting for something to move. So I got to read and they would pay me, you know, to be, you know, drive a fast car and carry a gun and chase crooks. I mean, it was the best, best world. So yeah. I was down to my last book in the backseat of my car. And it was the second book of, uh, the first book was an international bestseller of this guy. And so I knew it was going to be a good one. But what happens so often is, an author will write the first book and take 10 years to write it. And then they'll finally sell it. And then he has one year to write the next one. So the sophomore effort sometimes is a total bomb. And that's what happened on this one. So I thought I could write, I could write better than this guy. And I wrote my first four books on the front seat of my undercover car. Um, four really? legal pads. Yeah, four legal pads each longhand. Um, okay. I wrote four novels that way. I, I couldn't type at the time. Um, so I, I paid a woman to transcribe it. And put it on the big floppy disk, not the small ones. It was oh. back on the big floppy disk. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> yeah, that was a long time ago. Yeah, it was. So then it took. Um, I realized early that a good author makes it look easy because it was hard. I was on my thirty-eighth manuscript. I wrote thirty-eight books before I sold my first one, and I sold. You it wrote thirty-eight in... fucking books. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god! Before I sold the first one, so um, I learned my craft. I did my time. Uh, they say if you do 10,000 hours, you're an expert in whatever you're doing. And I think I have 20 or 30,000 hours. You're a black belt in book writing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I sold the first one in uh, 2014. And number 10 came out. Uh, no, number nine came out in February. And it got a star review in Publishers Weekly, which is the industry standard magazine, which is really hard to get a star review. review. Okay. So... so with that, let me cut you off real quick, um, because the, part of this is is the education part, and there's a lot of cops, there's a lot of first responders that have great careers, great stories, um, just in itself. Like me personally, I'll never write about this because I just I'm not that's not my thing. Uh, I talk about it on the podcast all the time, but uh, I had my own Breaking Bad story, like that happened, like a legit call. It was like Breaking Bad. So if you, are you familiar with that story? I, I know the, the series. The yeah. series, yes, it's it's yeah. very it's similar premise. And in, in, in okay. the, I'll give you the short version. Basically, a lady had um, uh, pancreatic 
cancer. She's stage four. She was going to die, and she was making a bunch of money for her kiddo before she died. Really? And she had no criminal history. So, yeah, yeah, it was crazy. Um, huh. But, uh, yeah, so I had this this happen. And, uh, shoot, you could write about it. I don't care. Take my story. Um, <laughs> but uh, I forget where I was going with that. Um, oh, people wanting to learn. Um, so cops out there or, or any first responders that may want to dip into what you're doing, how do they get started? What do you recommend for officers and well, is ER a, is nurses, a big, all those? There's a big jump between factual writing and police reports and fiction writing, and there's a lot more to it. Um, so <laughs> I don't know. Just start writing. That's what I did. I, I took the most emotional incident I could think of, and I wrote it down just the way I remembered it, and, okay. and that's why I started. Um, and then I wrote the book on both sides of it. So I, I wrote the incident, and then I motivated it, and then I had a reaction on the other end of it. So oh, if, any, okay. if anybody wants interested, I help people all the time. I actually give a class on how to write a novel. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. That's yeah, and I, I also uh, take, take pages from people, which is, I'm starting to get overloaded now because people are starting. I offer it all the time, and for a long time, nobody was doing it. Now, all of a sudden, I'm getting inundated. Uh, you know, I'll read 10 or 12 pages, you know, one, one chapter, and tell you, you know, Break it down. What's right? What's wrong? Explain it, you know, step by step. Okay, very cool. That's <laughs> yeah, that's a skill set I just don't possess. I don't have the patience for it either. <laughs> I would be like, <laughs> I I'd be falling asleep <laughs> reading people's stuff. The last thing I think I've ever read was like Homer's Odyssey. That was tough. Made, that's a tough read. Because they made me in high school. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough read. No, I did read Lone Survivor. Because a, a friend that I really trust and doesn't ask much of me made me like was like no I I need you to read this book and I want to talk to you about it I was like yeah. okay and then of course like two years later the movie come out and I was like see we could have held off for two <laughs> years and I would have yeah. just been able to watch the movie because it's not the same I was like yeah okay he he was right though the book and the movie completely and not completely different but fairly different so right. um but any any chance of any of your books going on the big screen the um sinister they liked it so much and there's a little bit more story to it but they sent it to denville washington production company oh. and they it looked pretty good and then they we just got a rejection last week on it Oh man, that would be awesome. Denzel does some good cop movies. Yeah. It's what yeah. when you talked about handing the card to yeah. him uh, that's here's your search one. I just thought of the Chinese menu that they used on Training Day. Well, did they use that on Training Day? <laughs> yeah, yeah. On Training Day, they used a, a Chinese menu. She's like, we, he's like, we got a search warrant here for oh. your house. And then she's oh. like, and so she, right before they're about to leave, she's like, I want to see that search warrant. He goes, you want to see the search warrant? And he hands it to her, and it's just a Chinese menu. Oh. <laughs> so that old school shit worked back in the day. Yeah. Um, but. Let's uh let's let's show what you got going on here. So for those interested in seeing your books, now you said you wrote thirty eight books before I sold one. Right now there's oh. only nine out there. Ten comes out in no no. I, I have a second series. It's called um, A Fearsome Moonlight Black, and that one just came out uh, three days ago. Okay, is that on is that your page here? No, I don't think my wife has updated the page yet. Uh oh, don't blame your wife. You're gonna get hit. <laughs> <laughs> she's sitting right here 
The Sinister, the one you're showing right there, that's the one that got to start with you and publishes weekly. And that's the one that they almost made into a movie. That's a really a great book. Okay. Kind of explain what, how, what it is you write. I mean, obviously it's true crime stuff related. Uh, well, sounds the, like you the, mix a little real with. No, there's, it's a continuing series of the same character. And Bruno Johnson's an African-American. He's an ex-con, ex-cop who rescues children from toxic homes. He couldn't do it when he was a cop, when he was a cop because too many rules and regulations. Now he goes outside the law to rescue the children. And that's the main theme throughout the, all, all the books. Oh, but so I, they're all connected. Well, there's an evolution of, of within the story arcs of all the books. He has okay. a makeshift um, uh, orphanage down in Costa Rica where he, where he has all these kids. So I think he's okay. up to 12 kids now. And if you're just listening to this podcast when this comes out, um, I'm actually scrolling through his webpage right now, davidputnambooks.com. So uh, spelt uh, P-U-T-N-A-M uh, for his last name. Um, but when you go to his page, all his books, he's got reviews, everything. Pretty pretty clean. I like your webpage uh, as, a, as a creator. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking at your page. It's pretty. I like the way it's set up. My so, wife, is, my wife runs that part of it. She's a techie. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Is she the one that hit me up as a, your media person? No, that's a publicist. Oh, okay. That's uh, Lisa okay. Daly. I will say you are the fanciest person that I've ever had on because I've never had a publicist reach out to me. I was like, <laughs> she's like, I see this little synopsis that she's saying she'd like to be on the show. And I'm, I'm reading through and I'm like, Oh yeah. Like, this is great. Like I, I, I'm pretty open. I let almost anybody on here um, that's, that can be related to what the show is. So I was like, yeah, like bring him on. We'll talk about his new book, all that good stuff. Uh, or I, I'm thinking it's her. Like, yeah, we'll talk about your book. I was like, where were you? You know, I'm wanting to ask where you were a cop. And then I, I'm starting to see, I'm like, oh, this is, she said David and this person <laughs> that sent it's a girl. Yeah. And, right. um, and I see it's like a media team. And I was like, oh, shoot, I got a fancy, fancy cop coming out here. <laughs> <laughs> you you ain't worked around us cops in a while so we got to bust your balls while we can no no i understand <laughs> and i missed it i loved the job i loved it a lot i've never had left if i hadn't gotten old and slow well man i tell you like it, it, the police work side of things like you still have your your guys on the street that are your go-to dudes the ones that are constantly making collars and right. you know know those those creative ways to figure out where these people are, are hiding. Um, I've got, you know, I, as good as I think I am, I like, there's still guys that I'm just like, how are you, how are you, how does your mind work the way that it works? Um, because they, they figure out these ways to, to find these guys. And I'm, I'm on the horn instantly. See, you missed out on kind of how policing is today. Like I can only imagine how many more people you would have been able to catch just because know. of all the tools we have available. Right, right. It's it's like what's the plate? Okay, da, 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 da. like they just hit this bank but they ran across the camera that's, you know, a mile away. All right, cool. Let's let's start triangulating in. And oh, no you, you can get on those guys quick if you have a good team. Huh. So, yeah, man. Yeah, you ever uh you ever come around my neck of the woods, I'll show you. I'll show you all how right. deep that rabbit hole goes, man. I'll get you <laughs> I'll get your fix for you. <laughs> but uh your new book, you said it was released 3 days ago. Yeah, it's called A Fearsome Moonlight Black. And okay. it, it, the first half of it, the first half of the book is true stories of my first year as a, as a street cop. And I blended it 
well, I, I think I did a good job because I'm getting great reviews on Amazon and uh, now book uh, <clears throat> Goodreads. Um, and then the second half is part fiction and I link it back to the first half. But um, I think it's a great book. Um, so if I'm going to start out, because you got eight, uh, nine, ten books out. Um, ten books out. Ten books out. If I'm going to start, where do you recommend I start? Because if you got audio, I'll listen. Okay, we'll start with Disposables. Disposables. That's the first book, that's the first book in the series. Okay. The Bruno Johnson series. Okay, there it is right there. Um, Fierce of Moonlight um, Black is not going to be an audible unless I pay for it. I got a different publisher. Oh, okay. Well, come on, bro. Step up. Cops are <laughs> cops. Cops like listening. Um, so I got disposables up. So I will. I'll look into that one. And then, uh, hey, you see that? You see that cover? Um, yeah. The publisher asked me what my concept was for the cover. Asked me my ideas, and I told her, you know, a knight with a headlight on a on a house with graffiti that relates to the book. And the, the cover guy was on a phone call. And at the end, they all liked it. At the end of the conversation, I, uh, the, co the cover guy, I say, so are you going to um, take some pictures and show it to me? And he goes, no, why don't, why don't you do that? So he laid it off on me. So I went outside. Uh, I drew it up on a, on a thing. And my wife actually went out and painted the side of our house. That's the side of our house. <laughs> so, so, really? Oh, so, shit. So we put, the, we put the headlights on it. Uh, I had the gun pointed, um, and we sent it. And they, they liked it so much, they put it on the cover of the book. So I had some friends, and, and my wife actually put the cover on Facebook and or put the picture on Facebook and said, look what they did to our house. As a joke. <laughs> and some yeah. friends from my gang detail called and said, we'll come and catch those guys for you. Because <laughs> it looks so real. I think we need to start investigating your wife. That tag looks awfully uh, authentic. Yes, it does. Uh, yeah, it's like it. she had some experience going out tagging. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she's marking the territory all around your neighborhood. You didn't even know. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, I appreciate your time, sir. We're almost at the two-hour mark. Um, I'm excited about your new book coming out for you, um, and I hope you do do an audio on that. Uh, okay. But you got anything else you want to put out there? Nope. Thank you very much for having me.